Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. So that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now, but now, we have been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. When I read this passage and I reread this passage and I read it over and over and over again, my mind turned back to a more simpler time. In my life, it was the late 50s and the early 60s, and there was an amazing TV program on that featured Steve McQueen as a post Civil War 1870s bounty hunter. And the name of the show was Wanted, Dead or Alive. And each week, the hero, Josh Randall, played by Steve McQueen, born March 24th, same as me. I loved Steve McQueen. He, he was like, this is before he became the superstar. He's this cowboy guy. And each week it was his job to catch or kill the bad guy. But sometimes the bad guy turned out to be a good guy. Falsely accused. And so Josh Randall had to find the facts and face the facts and follow the facts. And Paul the Apostle is doing exactly this in chapter 6 and chapter 7. The Apostle Paul wants to find the facts and face the facts and follow the facts. In Romans chapter 6, Paul wanted us dead and alive. Not dead or alive, dead and alive, dead to sin, alive To Christ. In chapter 6, Paul deals with the victory of the believer. In chapter 7, Paul discusses the difficult topic of defeat. And so when you go from victory to defeat to victory in chapter 8, you think, why not just skip chapter 7 altogether? But in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Paul is bringing us back to an earlier discussion in chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. It's a continuation of his earlier argument. Paul rejects the notion that Christians have been set free from sin in order to serve sin. 
Paul's opponents brought up the criticism that freedom from the law would open the door to lawlessness. Paul turns their argument around by insisting that those who are under the law are the real people who are in bondage to sin. The Jews never found freedom in the law. The Jews never found freedom in the law. The promises for salvation were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And only those who have died with Christ and possess the Holy Spirit have the ability to bear fruit to God. And so those who are under the law cannot yield good fruit and will have to bear the penalty of death that's pronounced over them. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us how to stop doing bad things. In Romans chapter 7, Paul tells us, even when we try to stop doing bad things, we wind up doing bad things. Are you confused? Let me help you. Paul knows the believer must understand that his or her new relationship to God and to God's law. As a matter of fact, this is a question that gets frequently asked. What is the believer's relationship to the law? Paul asks a second question in Romans chapter 6 verse 15. Shall we continue in sin because we're not under the law? Paul will answer that question in chapter 7 and explain that the believers are dead to the law just as they are dead to sin in chapter 7 verse 4. So to be under the law means that we must do something for God. To be under grace means that God has decided to do something for us. When we know and reckon and yield, we begin to experience some victory. So in chapter 6, we know, we reckon, we yield. We begin to live our lives a little bit differently. We lie less. The things that we used to do, we do it less and less and less. We, and when we know and reckon and yield, we begin to experience some victories over the flesh. We set a high standard and goals for our new Christian life. And before we know it, we think, okay, I think, I think I've got this Christian thing down. I'm doing a lot of the things that I used to do less and less and less. And then our flesh begins to think, I can do this. I can live a sin-free life. And then we realize that we stumble, that we fall. Before we know it, we stumble into the land of legalism. We become legalistic. What does that mean? You've probably heard that expression. Legalism is fundamentally the belief that we can be holy and right before God by obeying the law or the rules. And the measure of spirituality is defined and recorded by the do's and don'ts of the law. You've heard it over and over again. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. The weakness, the weakness of legalism... 
is that we become very selective about the do's and the don'ts. We pick and choose some of the rules instead of all of the rules. The real weakness of legalism is that it sees transgressions, but not transgressors. It sees the outward action, but not the inward spiritual condition. Legalism claims superiority over grace. The legalist will invariably turn their attention to man-made rules and regulations and opinions and ideas and cultural preferences. Max Lucado rightly wrote, quote, Legalism has no pity on people. Legalism makes my opinion your burden, makes my opinion your boundary, and then stealing my line, makes my opinion your obligation. I'm going to repeat that. Legalism has no pity on people. Legalism makes my opinion your burden, makes my opinion your boundary, makes my opinion your obligation. What he's basically talking about is for the person who tries to live the higher standard by looking at the rule and desiring to keep the rule instead of looking at Christ and desiring to love and obey and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's a bounty hunter, and the bounty hunter's name is guilt. And it puts a price on your head for transgression and failure, and you're tracked down, and you're found guilty, and then you're executed. God's holy law takes on a new power, and we wonder if we can ever do anything good. We lie. Less. We steal less, but we still lie and we still steal. We control our wicked tongue more, but it always seems to gain the upper lip. I mean, upper hand. (laughs) Our wicked heart continues with wicked thoughts. And so what happens to the person who says, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to keep the law. Well, you wind up breaking the law. And then you get upset over your failure. And then you get disgusted with yourself. Or you pretend. You pretend that there's nothing wrong. You pretend and the pretense works pretty well. Because you can pull off the pretense, you can feign success, you can create a facade, a thin veneer of self-righteousness which quickly morphs into hypocrisy disguised as righteousness because the legalist can only run in two different directions. To failure or hypocrisy. Legalists are hard on others. They're critical and they're unloving. And then they become unforgiving towards others and eventually towards themselves. And so in chapter 7, Paul is trying to spare the reader that kind of grief. If you or someone you love is in reality a person who always looks with fear and suspicion on somebody else, then this is the chapter for you. 
John Phillips breaks up the chapter rather nicely. He calls it the law and the spiritual man in verses 1 through 6. The law and the natural man in verses 7 through 14 or 13. And then the law and the carnal man in verses 14 through 25. So let's quickly look in verse 1. It says, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now I want you to think for just a moment. Who is the spiritual man? When he says, or do you not know brethren? The spiritual person is the believer who's controlled by the Holy Spirit. The natural man is the unsaved person who can rise no higher than his or her intellectual or moral or volitional powers will allow. The natural man is ruled by the senses. The carnal man is the saved person whose life is still partially dominated by the power of sin and the control of the old nature or the old man. These are the brethren that Paul is addressing. The law emphasizes human effort. No system of Christian living based on human effort will ever succeed in producing a victorious Christian life. And so if you've ever wondered what it's like to experience life and love and victory in Christ Jesus, Paul wants to introduce you to that. So Paul writes in this opening verse, For I speak to those who know the law. Not simply the letter of the law, but the power and the obligations and the duties of the law. Paul is a lawyer. You probably figured that out by now. The argument of the Jews was that the law of Moses was a perpetual obligation. But even the Jewish lawyers knew that death released a man from its power or its authority. Let me define authority for you rather quickly. Authority is that force that compels or obligates a person to act in a specific way. Again, authority is the force that compels or obligates a person. I was reading in Sardinia, Italy, there was this guy named Mario Mamelli. He went to the city hall for a new identity card. He was told... You have been officially dead for 19 years. And that by remaining alive, he was breaking the law. Well, scusi me. Yeah, what do you do? You go and you go, hey, wait a minute. I know that you say that I'm officially dead, but here I am. And remember what Paul has said. You are officially dead. To sin and alive to Christ. And then all of a sudden you start living your life. And all of a sudden the obligations and duties and restrictions begin to pile up on you. So what is Paul's point? The spiritual man or the spirit-filled person or the person who has been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit is officially dead. As Christians we've been delivered from the law. And so now Paul is going to... Come up with an illustration. The illustration of marriage. And so in verses 2 and 3, look what he says. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. 
But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Now, I want you to think this through with me very quickly. Paul's illustration of marriage is simple. But even this simple illustration becomes complicated. When viewed through the eyes of the law. The illustration is simple. The application is profound. Paul is still answering the question. Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? So Paul is using, he he used in chapter 6 a different illustration. He used the illustration of a master and a servant to explain how a Christian should yield to righteousness instead of sin in chapter 6. We should yield to God instead of self. Now Paul uses the illustration of a husband and wife to show that the believer has a new relationship to the law because of his or her union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's try and think it through. When a man or a woman unite in marriage, they unite for life. My middle son Anthony had a, had a shower on Friday that my wife put together. And she arranged so that people could write out cards, scripture references. And I said, don't take mine. I'm going to use the Genesis one. Therefore, a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to the woman. And the two shall become one. You leave your parents' basement. You go, you get married. You don't obligate me anymore. You become one. The real issue is which one are you going to be? Now, I want you to think this through. Marriage is a physical union. But it's a legal union. It's a spiritual union union. Genesis 2.24, the man will leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Since marriage is physical, one of the ways that marriage can be broken is through death. There's other ways that marriages can be broken. Paul's point isn't to do a sermon on marriage. Matthew 5, 31 through 34. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12 indicate that unfaithfulness also potentially breaks the marriage bond. So why doesn't Paul bring that up? Because his point is not a discussion of marriage and divorce. He's using an illustration to underscore another point. What is that point? As long as a husband and a wife live, they're under the authority of the law of marriage. If the woman leaves her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. If the husband dies, she's free to remarry because she's no longer the dead man's wife. Death breaks the marriage relationship and sets her free. The point of the illustration is death changes a legal relationship and frees the person who's still alive to enter into a new relationship. And so when it says, for the woman, in verse 25, who has a husband, 
or in the old King James, which hath a husband, it's all one word in the Greek language. It's the word hypondros. It occurs only here in the Greek New Testament. The word literally means under a man. It's an oriental expression. It meant a married woman. So the word literally under a man carries with it the idea of a person who's obligated under the terms of marriage. But if the husband dies, again, the literal language is if her husband dies. And again, it's talking about the event of death, not being in a state of dead. Remember, we already talked about that when we were looking at chapter 6. There's two expressions for dead. And one is the event that you and I call death, and then the act or the state of being dead. Here, it's the event of death. Many translations use the term released or loosed. Some translations use the term discharged. The Greek word is katar, geo, which is the same word translated destroyed in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Remember, when I used that particular expression, I said destroyed doesn't mean obliterated. It means like pulling the plug, rendered inoperative. And so in Romans chapter 3, verse 3, the word is translated to make without effect. In chapter 3, verse 31, it's translated to make void. In chapter 7, verse 6, it's translated delivered. All in all, the word is translated six different ways in six different appearances in the book of Romans. This is one of Paul's favorite words in the New Testament. He uses it some 25 times out of the 27 times that it appears in the Greek New Testament. The word means separated, discharged, loosed, released. However you translate the word, the idea is that the authority, the obligation, the power has come to an end. A complete severance with the previous relationship. Paul's point is that a person's duty and obligation and relationship to the law ends with death. And the spiritual person sees that this is true. And what he's trying to persuade the reader is to believe it both in principle and in practice. So the application of the law in the life of believer is what he's going to focus on. Now, we need to pause for a minute. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter writes, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Peter reminds us that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. The fact that they are hard to understand shouldn't dissuade us from trying to understand. And so here we go, and we go, 
Okay, Paul, what are you saying? He's giving two applications. One, about our death from the law, and the other, about our deliverance from the law. So again, now verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. Remember the brethren in verse 1. You become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now again, the careful reader will go, oh no, Paul has mixed his metaphors. Has Paul confused the illustration? This is going to take a little thinking. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Put your thinking cap on. And as you put your thinking cap on, let's think this through. Our death in Christ releases us from one union and unites us to another union. We now have a union of life. So when he says, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be buried to another. He who raised from the dead that we should bear fruit... Paul is basically saying this. To him who raised from the dead. We have a union. Not to the law. But to life. This is the secret of the strength of the Christian life. Our union is not legal. Or artificial. But organic. And living. We have a union of fruit. In other words, life produces fruit. The chief function of the law is to pronounce a verdict. The chief function of life is to produce fruit. Do you understand that? God's life in us produces God's fruit in us and through us. And so we're able to bear fruit to God. And this is high and holy fruit. The Christian life isn't a life, not just simply of consumption, but of contribution. In other words, you're not a Christian just so you can consume the benefits of God, but rather so that you can contribute to the kingdom of God. And so in verse 5, it says, for when we were in the flesh, that means everything that we are apart from God in Christ, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. What does that mean? When we were in the flesh. When we were unsaved, when we were unregenerate, when we were not renewed, when we were lost, when we were lost, when we were lost. When we were lost, were we under the authority of God's law as unsaved people? And the answer is yes. We were under the authority of God's law even when we were ignorant of God's law. Do you have to know God's law in order to understand that the soul that sins it shall surely die? Does the law impress itself upon every human being, saved or unsaved? The answer is yes. We were exposed by the law and condemned by the law. 
We were under the sentence of death. When we trusted Jesus as our Savior, we were united to him. We died to the law, just as we died to the flesh, like it says in Romans chapter 6. And he's going to repeat this in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. Now, this is the key. Ready? The law didn't die. We did. You did. The law didn't die. You did. So how can you change your relationship with someone if that person refuses to die? Now again, go back to Paul's illustration. Husband and wife. The wife goes, I'm obligated to this old man unless he's dead. Now I don't believe in divorce. But I'm considering murder. (laughs) Now, again, think about this. What do you do in a relationship that obligates you and that other person refuses to die? Here's Paul's illustration. You have to die. The law doesn't die. You die. In the illustration... The husband died, leaving the wife free to remarry. If you're the wife in the illustration and your husband is the law in the illustration, the application doesn't follow the illustration. If the wife died in the illustration, the only way that she could marry again would be to come back to life in a glorious resurrection. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Because what if that's exactly what Paul is teaching? What if this is exactly what he's saying? What if he's exactly saying that when Jesus died, you died. And when Jesus came back to life, you came back to life. And when you came back to life, all of the previous duties, obligations were finished. Does that leave a person under no authority whatsoever? Paul doesn't say that. He says, no, we're under Jesus. We share the life of Jesus. We share the love of Jesus. We we share the, the redemption and the reconciliation. Who died? We did. Did the law die? No. God's law still rules over men. But we died to the law. And it no longer has dominion. That means legal Right, authority, jurisdiction in the law. They call it the controlling or the directing authority. Again, Paul argues, are we lawless? No, we're governed by Jesus. We share the life of Jesus. We share the joy of Jesus. Later in Romans, Paul will cry out in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. But according to the Spirit. What does the law want you to do? It wants you to obey God and Christ. And the flesh says, can't do it. And the Bible says, 
But the presence of Jesus inside of your heart, filling you with his love and the knowledge of his goodness, and then imparting to you his grace, gives you the ability to do everything that the law requires of you. So, in the old life of sin, we brought forth fruit unto death. But in the new life of grace, we bring forth fruit to God. So to be dead to the law doesn't mean that we live a lawless life. It simply means that the motivation and the dynamic of our lives doesn't come from the law. It comes from God's grace through union with Jesus. So again, here's the big question. What is the motivation and the dynamic of your life? Are you living under a canopy? And under that canopy, it consists of the rules and the regulations which you've come to know. Or have you been set free to live in Jesus? Do you obey Jesus because you have to? Or because you want to? And you see, this becomes the key concept. It is, who are you really? How would you characterize your Christian life? And this becomes maybe the most important question that you could ask yourself this morning. What does this mean? What does this mean for me to live a life of grace? And if you start to assimilate it and you say, I am dead to the law. Do you see your life in terms of having failed to keep the rules? Do you see your life in terms of a never-ending hypocrisy as you pretend to do what's right and then, in fact, you don't do what's right? Or do you base your relationship and friendship with Jesus not on your ability to keep the rules, but on his ability to keep the rules? About his life and love and goodness You see, nothing's going to stunt your spiritual growth more and ensure your continuing immaturity than if you define your life in terms of a rule of lists. This is what I do. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. I witness. I do this. I do that. I do this and do that. Because you see, the rules can also be the rules of what you and I think about in terms of Christian living. Don't get me wrong. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to pray. I want you to go to church. I want you to be in fellowship. But I want you to read your Bible and pray and go to church and be in fellowship, not because you have to in order to make God happy, but because you want to. Because it becomes the very definition of what you love. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a mother or a father who says, okay, I'm going to feed my children breakfast because social services may show up and, and arrest me for child abuse. Really? Is that the kind of relationship you want to have with your children? If you've ever said, I'm obligated, this is my duty, this is my responsibility... You see, this is different when when we say, I'm in love. This is my joy. This is my pleasure. This is my honor. This is my privilege. 
The Christian under the law is like a cartoon character. Miserable. Two-dimensional. A Christian under the law is a miserable parody of power and love and passion because it doesn't seem to be real. I made up a little note. You may be a legalist when you love the rules more than the ruler. You may be a legalist when your first thought is, Hmm, I wonder how that person is different from me. You know, you might be a legalist if you think Jesus must not like that person because look at how they act. If you judge people by their appearance, if you think that you're better than someone else because you keep the rules and they don't. You might be a legalist if you think that God is mad at me Because I didn't pray today. Or because I'm so disappointed in myself. Remember what I've already said. If you're disappointed in yourself, it probably means you still believe in yourself. And the Bible is encouraging you to believe in Jesus. To put your trust completely in him. And so he ends with this, our deliverance from the law and dedication in the spirit. Look what it says in verse 6, but now, but now, having said all of that, but now, we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What does that mean? What does that expression mean? The oldness of the letter. Paul is talking about a conformity of behavior to the external rules of conduct that were prescribed by the law. The believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit fulfills the spirit of the law. How and why? Because we're motivated and we're informed and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit because we are motivated and informed and empowered by the character of Christ. The Christian life doesn't consist in a mere to-do list and a to-don't list. And so we're challenged to live out the love of Jesus and the character of Jesus. In the real world in which we live. What is Paul saying? I want you to, again, think logically. The law can't exercise authority over a dead person. You're dead to the law. You rose from the dead. You have a new authority. A higher authority. A living, breathing authority. It's so hard for people to understand this. They call me on my radio program all the time and they say, which day is the day of rest? Is it the Sabbath rest? Do you have to go to church on Friday from sundown to Saturday at sundown? Or do you have to go to church on Sunday? And I say to them, what is Jesus telling you to do? Can you rest on Saturday? Can you rest on Sunday? Can you love them on Saturday? Can you love them on Sunday? Which day is the Sabbath day? We don't have a Sabbath day. We have a Sabbath Savior. Our rest is in Jesus. You can fully, finally, and completely rest in him. You can wake up with him and rest in him. And you can go to bed at night and rest in him. And you can get up in the morning and you can rest in him. 
You can be fully satisfied because he has done everything. We don't have a new day. We have a savior who gives us every day in him. Yeah, you can clap. Not for me, but for what I'm saying. People will say, well, then what are you accountable to? Well, it all depends. I'm accountable to my wife. I'm accountable to my family. I'm accountable to the church. As the pastor, I'm accountable to a board of elders. And they're accountable to a document, which is our mission statement and our bylaws. In our country, we're accountable to a constitution. And we are accountable to a Bible. Am I obligated to keep the law of Moses? No, I am obligated to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. I was delivered from sin. Not to serve sin or self, but to serve the Savior. Here's Paul's point. You are saved for holiness and saved for service. And this truth refutes the accusation that Paul taught lawlessness or that loving and living in grace supports lawlessness. So how, do you, how does your new life in Christ compare with your old life where you live in darkness, in fear, in failure, in hypocrisy? You see, apart from Christ in the law, we have instructions to keep the law. And you see, here's the truth. The law will eventually result in law-breaking. But Paul says you can walk in newness of life. That's the point. You can walk in newness of life. Why? Because you have the Spirit of God. Why else? Because Jesus the Lord lives inside of you. What else? Because the living Lord Jesus inside of you is able to instruct you and direct you. Donald Gray Barnhouse gave this illustration. (laughs) He writes, around 1928, I led a Bible conference in Montrose, Pennsylvania. For about 200 young people and a few older people. One day, two ladies complained that some of the girls weren't wearing stockings. These ladies wanted me to rebuke them. Looking them straight in the eye, I said, The Virgin Mary never wore stockings. (laughs) They gasped. She didn't? I answered, No, in Mary's time, stockings were unknown. So far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century. (laughs) When the Renaissance began. Later, a lady of nobility scandalized the people by wearing stockings. And by Queen Victoria's time, stockings had become the badge of the prude. These ladies, who were holdovers from the Victorian epoch, had no more to say. I didn't rebuke the girls for not wearing stockings. A year or two afterward, most girls in the United States were going without stockings in summer, and nobody thought anything about it. 
Nor do I believe that this led to the disintegration of moral standards in the United States. Times were changing. And the step away from Victorian legalism was all for the better, unquote. When you think about that, there's little rules and regulations and things that we do. Stockings have been replaced by tattoos. Roy Lauren writes, Christianity is not sop to keep people quiet. It's dynamite to blast them loose from their prejudices and their weaknesses and their besetting sins, their unclean and unchristian habits, their petty selfishness, and all the rest of the things that enchain their lives to mediocrity and meanness. Christianity can never, ever, ever be a list of rules and regulations. It has to be a living, loving relationship with the Lord. You see, the condition of life under grace, sanctity, and service, not restraint from doing the wrong thing, but the freedom and the desire to do the right thing because Jesus lives inside of us. Chapter is going to get a little more complicated as we proceed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for grace. Grace that gives us freedom. Grace which can empower us to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would have the decency to see people not just simply as people who break the law but people for whom Jesus died that you placed in our life Lord we know that it will be impossible to offer them grace if we ourselves refuse to live in it And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us gracious men and women. Lord, we pray that we would look for reasons to love, forgive, reconcile, edify, encourage. Lord, we pray for that person who lives every day in darkness, emptiness, failure, hypocrisy. Lord, we pray that they would come to the place where they can fully, truly, legitimately, wholeheartedly love Jesus, walk with Jesus, be free in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.